Welcome to New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. We're your, your weekly hangout with experts, policymakers, local business owners, and interesting people in New England. Check out the NewEnglandTake.com to listen to the podcast version of the show, and be sure to follow and share New England Take on Twitter and Facebook. This segment is presented by the New Hampshire Insurance Department, which is committed to protecting the public good by ensuring a safe and competitive insurance marketplace. So when things go wrong, the New Hampshire Insurance Department is here to help. If you feel like you've been treated unfairly or have had a problem using your insurance, contact the Consumer Services Division. For assistance with your questions or complaints, you can contact them at consumerservices at ins.nh.gov. That's at consumerservices at ins.nh.gov nh.gov or call 1-800-852-3416. This is a free service offered to all New Hampshire residents. And definitely stick around for the second hour of the show where we'll have uh, Deputy Secretary DJ Betancourt to talk about uh, nhhealthcost.nh.gov, which is a really fascinating resource uh, that definitely people in New Hampshire want to check out to get the best, uh, get the most up-to-date information on rates and everything insurance-related. But this hour, I'm excited to be joined by Michael Azevedo, a producer, manager, podcaster, voiceover artist, and so much more. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's good to be here, AJ. I appreciate the invitation. So you're one of a handful of Azevedos that I've worked for over the last several years here. So if everyone has stuff to talk about, we can harass Rob and Laura. So they won't know uh, the better. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, well, I, I have to extend eternal thanks to my brother Rob, the culture vulture, and because he connected the two of us. I think I met you at one of his gigs probably four or five years ago. And when I was um, talking to him about this podcast, actually it was pre-podcast, when I was talking to him about needing a... Uh, uh, you know, a pro sound guru to help me out with some stuff. Your name was at the top of the list, and uh, it's been a marriage made in heaven. Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> and I got Rob actually coming in at the end of the month to talk about the uh, 2021 Downtown Queen City Basketball Jam, which he's been organizing, which is taking place July 17th in Manchester. Uh, but we're here to talk about the man with the smooth, deep voice today. Michael, <laughs> we're, so I want to start off with what you're working on of late. You've got we're gonna over this hour. I want to dive into some of your your history in sure. the um, media uh, space because it's it's super interesting working with WGBH and audiobooks and podcasting and everything. But um, let's start off with Making Media Now, which I serve as the editor for presently for you. What's the show? And talk a bit about the organization you do it for. Absolutely. So Making Media Now is a podcast that was launched uh, last November, so November of 2020. It is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative. And uh, to keep the nepotism really nice and tight, Filmmakers Collaborative is run by Laura Azevedo, who is my sister and Rob's sister. And I have been helping out uh, Filmmakers Collaborative with their marketing and their uh, social media uh, for a few years. And I don't know, maybe about a year ago, uh, Laura and I started talking about, you know, why don't we launch a podcast? So let me back up for a second. What Filmmakers Collaborative is all about, it's a nonprofit organization that works with independent filmmakers, essentially um, helping them connect with potential funders and also helping them navigate the um, the application process for any type of grant money that they might be looking for. 
uh, for for a uh, particular film project. Which is a uh, vital piece of work that's desperately needed for people in that space. That's not something you necessarily learn in film school. I feel like film school is great at getting you the creative end, but the business end is sorely lost. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And another thing that a lot of independent filmmakers don't know is when you go out into the world and say you've got this amazing idea for a documentary and you feel like, oh, our documentary would be uh, just ripe for, you know, um, NIH funding. Well, the NIH might think your idea is fantastic, too, but they're not just going to cut you a check. You have to have what's called a fiscal sponsor. And that's where uh, Filmmakers Collaborative come in. So they they act as the fiscal sponsor. In other words, they kind of manage the allocation of that fund and make sure that those monies are being put toward the project and not, you know, so the independent filmmaker can go out and buy themselves a new Maserati. Yes, exactly. There, there's a lot of... To- there's just a lot of writing that's needed for all that stuff. I mean, there's a lot of legal and paperwork that's needed to keep grants. I mean, I've talked about many times my full-time jobs at the university, and anytime there's a grant involved, good God. Absolutely. So FC, that, that sort of is was their primary um, you know, reason for being for a long time. And uh, since Laura has started running the organization, she's really expanded a lot of the offerings. Of they, they run something called FC Academy. Uh, which is a filmmaking uh, course uh, primarily for middle school kids. And they also run the Boston International Kids Film Festival, which takes place, uh, it's typically in November every year. I think it's gone on for six or seven years now. Um, So I would really recommend to any independent filmmaker to consider joining FC because you you really can can avail yourself to uh, their network of of independent filmmakers, you know, who have some super impressive rosters, you know, of films that uh, that they have uh, produced and directed. And uh, you also get access to a lot of what, what I guess you could refer to as like continuing education. So you just mentioned grant writing, uh, but they, we've also run, <clears throat> excuse me, webinars on um, the distribution process. Uh, because a lot of filmmakers will tell you, you know, I just spent five years making this movie. Great. Where does it go? And the distribution world is changing, has changed very, very much over the last uh, handful of years, you know, with the with the streaming markets and what they are looking for has changed. So um, I can't uh, I can't encourage independent filmmakers uh, enthusiastically enough to Check out Filmmakers Collaborative. It's uh, filmmakerscollab.org, which you probably hear in your sleep because you've heard me say it a bazillion times with our sponsor credit. So, Yeah, and Making Media Now specifically, you're interviewing filmmakers, producers. Yeah, so producers. with Making Media Now, what we wanted to do was, you know, it's, it's, it, the goal is actually right there in the title. I wanted to have conversations with media makers, and we define media pretty broadly. Um, it's not just filmmakers, although, you know, we probably skew to filmmakers and documentary filmmakers, uh, but we've had authors, we've had journalists, um, uh, uh, I, we had some, um, I, I like having shows where I talk to people behind the scenes. I've had some, what I think to be really fun conversations with um, a sound engineer, in fact, an Academy Award winning sound engineer. Um, Later this month or probably next, I'm going to be speaking with a colorist 
And so people outside the business might be like, a what? What do they do? But if you're in the business, you that, realize how vital. As someone that does that that work, I mean, there's yes. a lot when it comes to color and making different cameras look the same and mixing cameras, f- uh, film cameras with digital cameras. And there's a reason why Scott Snyder's films all look like uh, someone put forgot to color them. It's because he decided he didn't want them colored. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I've spoken with a storyboard artist. Uh, next month, I'll have a conversation with a composer to go through that whole process of how does a composer work with a director. Uh, so, yeah, I try to cast a pretty wide net. Um, not all of the people on the show are filmmakers, colla- uh, filmmakers Collaborative members, but many are. Um, so it's, you know, it's an invitation, really, uh, to people uh, who have uh, not just interests in uh, filmmaking, but just kind of, you know, the nuts and bolts and the inspiration and the frustrations and the opportunity uh, for media makers. And we have done 30 episodes. Um, number 31 will be posted tomorrow. After yeah. you help me, help, after you help <laughs> me correct the <laughs> intro that I messed up. <laughs> yeah, I feel like something that's been very important that the show comes across and that you've touched upon is there are many people involved with making a, a proper film come out. Um, yeah. And I feel like it's really important that, to put that time in, so like, like storyboarding. If you're doing narrative at all, and it's going to be filmed on expensive cameras that cost tens of thousands of dollars a day to rent, you want to know going in what you're, what's going to happen. And I found that episode especially um, important for people that aren't familiar with the industry to check out. Yeah. Yeah. And as I'm sure you've discovered this, too. You know, sometimes you go into one of these conversations thinking, oh, man, this is this is one that people are going to love. And sometimes they do. But then others that I feel like maybe it's going to have more of a niche appeal. They turn out to be super uh, popular. Um, you know, super popular is a relative term. Joe Rogan is not losing any sleep, you know, wondering about making media now yet. All in due time. Yeah. And. I feel like the distribution is another thing. I f- you do a really good job towards the end of each of these episodes asking where they're going to be releasing it. And usually it devolves a little bit into them discussing the troubles of getting their films put onto the proper services because... It certainly can, yeah. You know, it's not like... What's, what's been amazing about YouTube is that literally anyone can just put a video up and over time you might make it. I mean, you might literally be the next person that gets 10 million view, ten million subscribers and you can make a solid living off of it or even several hundred thousand you could survive off if you get brand deals. But when it comes to a proper film that you're going to spend several years working on, get it published, you don't necessarily just want to put it on YouTube. You want to be able to get on Netflix, Amazon, and all these other on-demand partners and rental partners where there are contracts involved, there's lawyers involved, you got to get on the right distribution house that plays nice with it, and you also got to that's I mean, been in some of your episodes also is they may not like the message you're putting in that message in that video and they may not want put published yeah very true um a recent episode in fact it might be the one that's the most recent uh we had a, a a very experienced filmmaker in fact she won an academy award for a documentary called born into brothels probably about 15 years ago and she's made a beautiful film called uh, To Which We Belong, which is about practices of regenerative agriculture. Um, and, and she was having a heck of a time, even with a proven track record, to find a distributor she has 
So, you know, happy ending in that case. But as you might recall from the conversation, uh, you know, four or five years ago, uh, the Amazon Primes and the Hulus and the Netflix of the world were saying, yeah, give us your content, give us your content. More and more now they're saying, give us your idea, we'll produce it in-house. Um, but as I'm sure you have realized that, you know, every time sort of one avenue of opportunity shuts down in, in terms of content creators, another one seems to open up. And it might take a little while to get some traction, and it takes a couple years sometimes to see which ones shake out. But um, you know, I had a conversation with a woman who runs an organization called IndieFlix, and what what they kind of did a pivot and decided if if you're making a film that has any type of educational import, come to us and we'll go. We're going to distribute to schools. And we're going to distribute to libraries and to community organizations. So, you know, it's and if you're a filmmaker, that's far more attractive than, as I said before, slaving away on a film for five or seven years, uh, you know, and it plays for one night in a festival. And, you know, you get to hang a poster in your office. That kills me about the film festival circuit is if you're lucky, you'll get a couple a couple showings and that's about it. And you've invested some of these people have invested almost a million dollars and or more in some of them. And yep. it, it gets shown once. You hope you get an award. If you don't get an award, you're likely not getting a distribution deal. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So, so true. Yeah. And a lot of people, what they don't realize that really a, a, a film festival is like speed dating between yeah. filmmakers and distributors. And, and you got to have you, the right slot too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're playing you at, you know, at uh, 12:30 a.m. on a Tuesday. Yeah, it, it's not going to go well for you and <laughs> right. Um, but the education market is especially nowadays where it's so easy to get a to get a video file out there. It's that's that's a good part of YouTube nowadays is just what would be honestly considered education, whether it's about using, getting into photography, for example. It's a big reason why my photography has improved over the last seven, eight years when I started getting into stills is, is because there's all sorts of content out there and people just eat it up. And yep. now with schools starting to finally understand this sort of thing, because the technology's inexpensive enough, there's lots of opportunities for libraries. I mean, check out your local library for sure because the odds are they have some some form of uh, video on demand or go to their go to the library itself and they'll have a video collection there for all sorts of niche topics I'm sure absolutely and you know when back to the filmmakers collaborator for a minute with the FC Academy you know one of the mandates that that Laura had when creating FC Academy was to not just instill the sort of the nuts and bolts know-how about putting a movie together, but to sort of um, inculcate a sense of media literacy uh, to, you know, to, to almost be a, a discerning viewer and a discerning filmmaker so that, you know, maybe your end product gets to stand out a bit from the other, how, I don't know how many million are on, you know, uh, YouTube and Vimeo, et cetera. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Be sure to check out the newenglandtake.com to get the podcast version of the show and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at New England Take. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to New England Take, WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. Joined here by Michael Azevedo, who we've been talking about his podcast that he hosts for uh, the Filmmakers Collaborative. Uh, the podcast is called Making Media Now. So continuing on our conversation about that, it's with regards to, with regards to education, something that I fight back against as I'm listening to some of your episodes is there's a lot of activists that get into filmmaking Most and definitely. it's, it's, um, whether it's yeah. right or left, I mean, it's the, uh, you always feel like the mainstream always pushes the left. There's a lot of, uh, center and right wing or documentaries that show both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you see that a lot. I feel like HBO does a pretty good job with a lot of their documentaries, make sure they kind of show a little bit of the other side too. Like there's a reason why certain things have happened that may be bad nowadays, yep. but, yep. um, I mean, why do you feel like the the um, activism is especially popular when it comes to um, a lot of the, the I mean, especially in your background working in public television? That's it, there's a lot of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's there's certainly a degree of subjectivity, uh, more than a degree. There's a it, it's all subjective to you know uh, after a certain point. You know, if you if you go back and you look at the roots of documentary filmmaking. And you look at the practice of, you know, what what's referred to as cinema verite. Uh, you know, one of the pioneers, uh, at least in America, of documentary filmmaking is a guy named Frederick Weissman. And a total purist. The guy's he's in his 90s. I think he's still making films. But his idea of a documentary was you're going to I'm going to um, put a tripod in an office building and I'm going to just roll tape. I'm going to you know roll the film. And 16 hours later, I'm going to see what we got. I'm going to cut it, but I'm not going to. He, he, he was such a purist. He felt like if you lit or you put in music, you were manipulating the viewer. Right. And one of his um, goals was he he made a lot of films that he, he would hope would sort of um, reveal how big organizations worked. Back in the 70s, he made a film called Titicut Follies, uh, which was a look at a, uh, uh, a mental hospital uh, in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And what his film captured were practices that were so egregious. His film got the hospital shut down, but there's not a word of narration. There's no got you interviews. It's completely... Uh, as I said, fly on the wall kind of filmmaking. So your question is, you know, around activism. Um, You know, I think it goes back to sort of a a lot of the filmmakers, they have their roots in journalism and storytelling. And, you know, typically or quite often at the root of the story, there's somebody trying to get an answer from some powerful entity. You know, or they're or they're looking at a situation and said, how do, how do we get from A to B? So there's there's no way to tell that story without, you know, revealing um, some type of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the litmus test for a good documentary is, you know, where's the line between exposing and informing and propaganda? Yeah, and that's I, been a real tough thing to, to figure out, especially with how the volume of media nowadays, it, it's, I almost feel less gross about it if they come out at the onset that 
in some way that I believe this is this is the case, and you they're not hi, they're not hiding it, and then going oh by the way, it, we're hiding all these other aspects of it, and they come out after the fact, which is very very difficult because as yeah. you know, production techniques, um, it's really so much easier these days to make uh, you know sort of a um, a homemade film on the cheap on the fly but with you know with uh after effects that make it look as good as anything that mm. you're seeing on an HBO that went through rounds of revision and review committees etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's um it's a bit of a pandora's box yeah. um but the you know the the type of activism that, that I'm drawn to if we want to use that word activism is more around I love people that are sort of passionate about an idea and and maybe the film is just a it's a um, uh, it's a profile of an individual and so they're passionate about that person's you know story or or they're you know they're passionate about a particular cause and how it's impacting people so you've got to you know it, it it has to work on a human level and I think it, it does it has to reveal a certain a certain um, passion the politics of things people are going to sort of you know view things through their own political prism and again if you're interested in making propaganda there's a lot of venues for that but if you're interested in sort of saying to somebody here's a slice of life that i think you know uh, could be interesting enlightening illuminating check out my film yeah, yeah, we talked about this last week with Brett Marshall from Winwood Productions, which is a, a video production or actually multimedia production house in Concord. That um, having a message is like one of the most important things when you're putting together a film or a podcast or a video or anything at all. To to you really want to be sure on the onset to to know that I'm I'm this is what I want to have come across. I mean, ultimately. As it go, as the project goes on, how that message is perceived might change. You may even change how you view that message as it goes on. But you should sure. go into it with a purpose. Yeah, yep, yeah. So I, you know, I one of the things you, if you were to connect the dots of a lot of the people that I speak with uh, on um, making media now, we could very quickly play six degrees of separation from WGBH. Yes. I worked at, so WGBH is the, the flagship PBS station in Boston. And I worked there for a whole bunch of years. And I, in many instances, I either work, I'm, I'm going to speak with somebody tomorrow, a filmmaker tomorrow who I haven't worked with in 20 years, but she's gone on and made two or three, uh, very well received documentary. She now runs the film studies program at Wesleyan University. Um, but you know, many of the roads of the folks that I I speak with lead back to GBH. And what brought me to GBH was I was always interested in education and storytelling. And I caught a lucky break uh, young when I, when I was pretty recently out of college. Um, to work at GBH, which was kind of the you know the nexus of both of those things. How did GBH end up being such the big player in the education market for PBS programming? I feel growing up, 
in Maine, like obviously that that's the kind of regional player. But I'm it not feels like, like an, my answer, AJ. Oh no, you know, pointy-headed intellectuals at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to create something called the um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Children's Television Network. Uh, so it was, you know, and, and I will say they also were, they would be referred to as sort of the elite, quote unquote, now. Um, that, you know, back in the 1960s, a guy named, I forget his first name, Minow was his last name. I think he was the chairman of the FCC. He testified in front of Congress and he, he, he described the television airwaves as a vast wasteland. So these group of academics and, and, and filmmakers said, well, you know what, he's right, but it doesn't have to be this way. And given that the airwaves, and this is pre, this is obviously a pre-cable environment, the airwaves were a public utility. So, you know, why are we letting at this at the time just those three networks dictate you know what was going to be on there so that sort of is the uh, that's a very clumsy way of talking about what the footprint of PBS was and the and frankly the reason it uh, GBH was so instrumental was literally their geographic connection to Harvard University uh, and Cambridge and just a lot of the uh, you know the folks at the time who were driven by a similar passion yeah, it's going back to what we're talking about um, activism a little bit, but also sure. just the the um, it goes hand in hand with educators. They want to educate as many people as they can. It's not necessarily just the students that they have in the classroom. It's beyond yep. that, and that carries over. I mean, Nova came out of GBH, correct? Absolutely, sure. Nova. So one of the things I did at GBH, and this was this was literally before websites were being called websites. Uh, GBH was the first public television station in the country to have a interactive media department. Oh, wow. So we, we started creating uh, what we used to call back then, back then multimedia versions of PBS programs. Uh, so I worked on the Nova website. I worked, um, I, I worked for Frontline. I worked for a show called The American Experience. So it was just such a great opportunity to, we were creating new media, quote unquote, you know, this was back when you would turn on your computer and like 20 minutes later, the, the modem had, you know, had kicked in. And, and then if you had 90 seconds to load an image, <laughs> you could really have a great experience. But anyway, that was um, my time in the interactive media department exposed me to all of the, um, the production units of these various shows. Uh, and, you know, it uh, uh, was my entree into a lot of the great relationships that continue to this day. Yeah, it feels like everyone that's been through the public radio or public television realm, it, it's kind of like a brotherhood where it's like, oh, you worked there then, and you just trade war stories. It's funny listening to some episodes of the podcast where you guys start diving into some of that. Oh, yeah, it's so funny. You know, I lived on the West Coast for a little while, <clears throat> excuse me, and I was living in Burbank uh, in Southern California, and uh, I was going to Starbucks. And, you know, one of the one of the big East Coast, West Coast differences is you see a lot of like really good looking older cars on the West Coast because they're not getting beat up by road salt and so forth. Um, but I'm walking through the parking lot to Starbucks and I see this like this sort of dumpy Volvo and like an old one. And I was like, geez, that's so weird for around here. And sure as heck, I look at the back of it and there's a GBH employee sticker on it. I go into GBH and there's this person I wasn't friends with, but I knew the person from there. I'm like, what are you doing here? 
Yeah, it, and it seems like GBH has always done a good job staying ahead of the curve on, uh, oh, like, what direction TV is going. I mean, I feel like uh, Nova and such were, were ahead. Like, that that sort of content would play well in the early 2000s into the 2010s. Without Nova, there's no Discovery Channel. Yeah. You know, without... without and, and actually, PBS initiated what came to be reality TV. Back in the 1970s, yeah. there was a series called An American Family. Talk about cinema verite, where a, a film crew went to live with this family named the Louds uh, in Marin County. And it was going to be just sort of... This was the late 60s, early 70s. You know, it was going to be the American family today. Dad goes off to work, blah, blah, blah. Well, as it turns out, the family disintegrated during the production. So it made fantastic television. Oh, yeah. Like one son came out. It was revealed the dad was having affairs. Uh, It's pretty fascinating. If you have Apple TV, they're running a series right now called 1971, uh, which is super fun to watch. Uh, but in one of the episodes, they actually they spend they spend a little time uh, looking at the phenomenon of an American family. But that again, without an American family, believe it or not, you don't have Big Brother. You don't have Real World. You, you know, uh, you, you don't have a lot of the proliferation that you've got. Yeah, I mean, just just politically, I've always made it quite known on the show where I where I stand politically is quite libertarian, leaning to the right a bit. But I I 100% support PBS. I think it's a, it's a very important resource for our country and uh, for schools especially because it offers so much content for schools to be able to share that's educational and Sesame Street and everything like that. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, we're going to take a quick break. I'm uh, speaking with Michael Azevedo. We're going to be continuing on with him after this. You're listening to the New England Take on WKXL. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Be sure to check out the NewEnglandTake.com to get the podcast feed and get our links for our Facebook and Twitter accounts. This segment is presented by the New Hampshire Insurance Department, which is committed to protecting the public good by ensuring a safe and competitive insurance marketplace. So when things go wrong, the New Hampshire Insurance Department is here to help. Feel like you've been treated unfairly or have had a problem using your insurance? Contact the Consumer Services Division. For information with your questions or complaints, you can contact them at consumerservices at ins.nh.gov. That's at consumerservices at ins.nh.gov or call 1-800-852-3416. This is a free service offered to all New Hampshire residents. Welcome back, Michael Osvito, to the uh, third segment of the show for the first hour. Good to be here. All Still right. good to be here. Yeah, continuing. It's just like magic for us because we don't <laughs> stop rolling, but the, uh, the audience doesn't know it. All right, so... After working at WGBH, where did, you, where did you go after that? I spent uh, almost 10 years working in a couple of digital agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was primarily driven by the fact that I, I live on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Uh, and um, I was actually, I was working on a couple of programs at GBH, but my kids were young and I had a hellacious commute. And I just remember one of the shows was on hiatus for a few weeks. And I sat down one day and I, I kind of drew a radius and said, I am not commuting further south than here. I had told myself I would drive as far north as Portland, Maine, because it was no traffic. Um, anyway, I ended up working in Portsmouth. 
uh, for a couple of different agencies for uh, about a 10-year period. There's um, a ton of agencies in the Seacoast and uh, yeah. in northern Boston area. It's yep. shocking. <laughs> yep, yep. And it was interesting because one of them, um, most of our clients were in a space that I knew nothing about. Uh, it was mostly um, the alternative asset management space and uh, financial services space. But it was, I've always loved um, being able to take a temporary deep dive into new, you know, into new worlds. Um, I could never envision myself having one of those, I don't know that they exist anymore, but once upon a time, you know, people would get that, well, you get that one job for 30 years, you do the same job for 30 years and you retire with the, with the gold watch. I always just, I always just thought to myself, oh my God, how boring that must be after a while. Um, and you know, when you work on project-based stuff, you're always having to, what I always say, you, you're, you have to get artificially intelligent, uh, at least enough to be conversant with the people who truly know what they're talking about, you know, in order to have a conversation. And so what we would do is we would work with these folks and they, it was branding initiatives. Mm -hmm. You know, we did some video work, some video profiles, but it was a lot of websites. It was a lot of, um, you know, uh, brand, um, uh, brand redos or a refresh or, you know, people wanted a different uh, public facing um, story and mission. Uh, so they would come to us for that. I mean, what sort of trends did you did you see over time? I mean, what things became more important to your clients over the span of your career there? I mean, was it data. more at the video? It was data? Data. The slicing and dicing of data. Um, and I mean, personally, that made me less enchanted with the process. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I'm sure that's a deficit on my part. Um, I do not get all excited by SEO. I do not get all excited by SEM. I understand it as a utility. I understand it as it has a value in driving data. But, you know, to, um, I guarantee you, I'll, you know, I'll bet you a dollar. You go on LinkedIn right now and you're going to find tens of thousands of people calling themselves SEO gurus. And it just, to me, it wasn't, that had nothing to do with kind of storytelling or, you know, positioning uh, or what I like doing is learning about somebody's story and what's different about it. And whether that somebody is an individual or an organization, what's different about it, what's special about it and helping them communicate that. Yeah, that's been a real interesting thing. It's like I'm I'm a mid millennial in the generation there, uh, at 34 right now, and it's been fascinating to see over the last I'm uh, coming up on 11 years since college, and I've been at the university since, but seeing and at the radio station basically since, and it's been fascinating to see the shift towards. Yes, your creative is important. You got to be able to produce different things as a, as a media producer, but you also got to show that it's getting those clicks or you're rearranging the format so that you're getting more people viewing it and you're getting those those metrics. And I hate it. I hate it so much. Yeah. Well, you know, it's and, and it's nothing new, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you were ever a fan of Mad Men, uh, but they did a great job in um, – uh, you know, sort of foreshadowing that there's one character in the agency that is obsessed with this, you know, computer that's about the size of four refrigerators because it was going to allow them to deliver data to their advertisers. Mm -hmm. You know, commercial television 
the dirty little secret around commercial television is that the viewer thinks, oh, it's all about television shows. It is not. No. It's a delivery system of eyeballs to advertisers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, that's what uh, radio is the same way. I mean, it, ultimately, it's if you don't get the proper advertisers to keep your show on the air, you're gone it, it, because they can't afford to keep you on. It's so expensive to keep up these these media agencies, these uh, these TV broadcasters, these radio broadcasters. The infrastructure needed to keep these things functioning mm-hmm. uh, is astronomical. But on the just to finish up on the agency side, mm-hmm. one trend that I did see that. Um, I actually am quite interested in is the area of branded content. Yeah. So, you know, branded content, basically, it's typically an established brand that is very, it is so, they're so confident uh, of the relate, the existing relationship that they have with their consumers that they don't need to be hard sell to them. So it's a, you know, it's a, uh, you you see, I mean, you see examples of branded content across all industries, but you know, one that resonates for me, probably just aesthetically, is say like an outdoor brand, like Yeti. Like you know, Yeti makes uh, thermoses and tackle boxes and and things of that nature. But their branded content looks like these beautiful films, you know, amazing visuals with drone shots and. And, and the word Yeti comes up at the end. And there's, you know, there's some product placement. But, you know, I, I, I think that consumers are sophisticated enough to understand that the, the product or the service is an entry into an experience. Yeah, an experience and hopefully future dollars. I mean, it's the whole Apple ecosystem is based around that. They do these ridiculously fancy videos. And now, because of COVID, which I'd imagine is just going to be the way it is from now on, they're... their present, their keynote presentations, which they've been famous for since Steve Jobs, has been completely reformatted. It's now, I mean, they, the amount of time they put into it, people put into feature films because there's all the transitions, all the graphics. It just smoothly goes for an hour and a half straight, and there's no break. And, and that's how they sell their products for the following quarter to half a year. And the, I, I would imagine the budget on those, you know, would probably fund a, a dozen of these documentaries that I oh, yeah. <laughs> that I discuss oh, yeah. on our podcast. And now I want to. Well, we have a few minutes left here. I'd like to just touch upon a little bit. You've also begun diving into doing audiobooks with, as a uh, voiceover artist for those. That that must be a heck of a thing to uh, deal with some of these. I mean, some of the clients we've dealt with. I've been your editor on them. Uh, it's what's it like getting into that market. Well, I got into that market because, um, you know, I had off and on done voiceover work for for a while. And I say off and on because for a long time, you couldn't do voiceover part time because uh, the technology demanded that you had to be in the studio even to audition for stuff. So you can't hold a full time job and do that. when when I was at back to GBH, when I was at WGBH, I used to do scratch track narration uh, for different filmmakers. And scra- as you know, before they're gonna you know call in the professional narrator, a lot of times they wanna they they wanna cut a rough cut, and so they want narration to accompany it. And you know I had a decent voice, and I always got good feedback, and people would say, oh, you should put a demo together. So I did. For about seven years. I was the voice of the man in the yellow hat 
for Curious George all of their webisodes and their DVDs. That was my alter ego. It was a big hit in the the, the four year old segment. Oh my um, god! No way! That's hilarious. That's oh yeah, my absolutely. Kids' favorite show. I'm, now I'm very curious to think back to how old some of those are. Whether that was you. <laughs> oh yeah, I did it from 2006 to two to 2016. Oh so my god! Yeah, so I probably am brainwashed by your voice on there, and it didn't click with me. <laughs> okay. Well, if you go to bed tonight and you hear, "Pry again." that's just the right amount of sand, then you'll know it's me. <laughs> In any case, so uh, the audiobooks, AJ, was a total COVID pivot because stuff started shutting down and I was thinking, all right, um, you know, s- certain projects that I was working on um, either came to a halt or they were sort of, it was a timeout because people were like, well, we got to figure out, you know, how the world is reshuffling itself after this. So I started doing a little digging around and I found out about this uh, audio platform called ACX, uh, which is owned by Audible, which is owned by Amazon, as is everything. Um, and so, yeah, the audiobook world, again, it, it we were talking about film festivals being sort of like a dating marketplace. Um, ACX is a total dating marketplace. If you're a, if you're a voice person, you put up your profile, you put up your samples, uh, of your of, of yourself reading certain types of content and a publisher will find you and you know you and I have had a lot of fun with this one niche that uh, I stumbled into which is uh, self-help for this Italian author uh, or publisher who um, let's just say he struggles with English in, in terms of grammar and structure He's, he struggles to figure out what he wants to be called as his pen name let alone well, the language too. yeah yeah oh exactly my God, edits to that but it, it's I, I mean even just doing what I do as a newsreader for a radio station I I can't fathom doing the hours of reading out loud these books that you do I mean I mean some of these books are good eight to ten hours for yes. I mean is it basically you've just just practice over time or have you been doing anything in particular to kind of get that smoothness as you go through ha huh. well I appreciate you saying the smoothness <laughs> as I go through part no I'm gonna be uh, I'll be quite honest with you the way I look at it is in terms of pricing um, it is to my benefit to get it done I don't want to say fast in the, in a sloppy way um, but that you know, there there are audiobook people that will spend like a week with the manuscript first. I give it a read through. Um, I discovered early on that um, you know, unless you're really getting uh, the super high paying jobs, you do not want to do audiobook where there's a bunch of different characters, because if it's taking me a week and a half, I got to remember the intonation mm-hmm. of what you know the car dealer in chapter four had when he reappears in chapter 12, right? Yeah. So if you note the stuff that I do that that you engineer, um, I like the self-help or the, there's one guy that does a lot of business, um, sort of, you know, uh, business for dummies kind of books. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, because it, it's just straight text. There's There's not a lot of, and then he said, and then she said, uh, I did do a couple of, I think this one author had uh, had hopes of uh, being the next Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and, uh, they won't be. <laughs> <laughs> they won't be, no. And, and, 
And I actually used a pseudonym for that one. A good call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, we're coming up on the end of the show here. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. It's been a blast. Can, can oh, you give one, very one fun. Yeah, can you give one more plug to Making Media Now so people can check it out? Sure. Making Media Now and filmmakerscollaborative.org. So Making Media Now, you're going to find it on wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and with the expert assistance and guidance and you know, fevered texting uh, that I send to AJ. It goes up pretty much every six or seven days. Uh, So uh, yeah, you can find it. There's, as I said, there's 30 episodes and we're, uh, we're chugging. Thanks. Thanks again for joining me today, Michael. Michael Azevedo, really appreciate it. Uh, definitely don't go anywhere. The next hour of the show, or if you check out our podcast feed, we're gonna be list, we're gonna be talking to New Hampshire Insurance Department Deputy Commissioner DJ Betancourt, who's gonna talk about the nhhealthcost.nh.gov website, which was just refreshed and has some amazing resources for New Hampshire residents. And after that, I don't know. I haven't figured out what I'm doing for the last segment. So you definitely want to subscribe and check out our social media feed so you can find out what we decided to do for that last bit of the show but we'll be right back after this you're listening to the new england take and to bkxl 1450 am 13.9 fm and the new england take.com